In Luke chapter 17, verses 20 and 21, Luke recorded a conversation Jesus had with a group of Pharisees. The Pharisees were an influential religious group or sect within Judaism at the time of Jesus, and many were leaders of the synagogues and teachers of the law or the Torah. And they were keenly interested in the kingdom of God. And in these two verses we read, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Jesus boldly proclaimed that the kingdom of God had broken into the world in his person and ministry. The Pharisees did not need to look to the sky because the initial manifestation of the kingdom was before them. Sadly, many of these religious leaders and teachers failed to see and behold the king and his kingdom because he did not arrive as they expected. The Gospel of Luke provides a thoroughly researched record of the arrival of God's promised Messiah, his chosen and anointed king. Jesus came into the world, bringing with him the presence of the kingdom of God. But the manner of his arrival, the deeds he performed, the company he kept, and the things he taught surprised many. He was not what they were expecting. But those who had eyes to see and ears to hear rejoiced at the coming king and the arrival of his kingdom. We are beginning a sermon series going through the Gospel of Luke. And as Alan mentioned, it's going to be a long sermon series. Luke is the longest book in the New Testament by word count. And so, Lord willing, our sermon series is going to be over 60 sermons. Because Luke is long and good. It is a wonderful, glorious gospel where we will find rich teaching, great encouragement. I believe the Lord will use this study to strengthen us in our faith. And so we are going to take our time working through this wonderful gospel. If you are a Christian, Jesus is your king. And you are already a citizen of his kingdom. Our hope and prayer through this series is that we will be amazed by our king and grow in our love for him as we learn about his kingdom, helping us to live as citizens of his kingdom here and now while we look forward to the day when we will experience the fullness of his kingdom. Before we jump into the first few verses of this gospel, there are a couple of things I think will be helpful for us to consider at the outset. First, it's helpful for us to distinguish between gospel accounts and the gospel message. 
meaning there are two ways we see the word gospel used in the New Testament. On the one hand, there are gospel accounts. That would be Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The gospel accounts provide a record of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. The gospel message is the good news that God saves sinners in Jesus Christ. So, for example, we see that second usage in several places. In Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, we read, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Or Romans 1.16 which says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Or 1 Corinthians 15, 1 and 2, which says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believe in vain. So in these instances, we see how the New Testament uses that word gospel to describe the message, the announcement of God's good news that he is saving sinners in Jesus Christ through his life, death, and resurrection. In the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we learn of the gospel message, this message that has the power to save everyone who believes. The gospel accounts make known to us the gospel message. Second, I think it's helpful to know why this gospel is attributed to Luke, as the author does not actually identify himself in the gospel. In some books in the New Testament, the author identifies himself. Like Paul will write a letter and he'll identify himself as the author of the letter. Not so with the gospel of Luke. So there are two reasons the gospel is attributed to Luke. And the two reasons are one, evidence within scripture, and two, the testimony of the early church. So here's what we see in scripture. The author of Luke also wrote the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, we read, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach, until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days, and speaking about the kingdom of God. In a few moments, we're going to see some similarities between the introduction to Acts and the introduction to Luke. The author wrote both of these volumes to this person named Theophilus. We also have a number of we passages in the book of Acts where the author speaks in the first person plural. We see this in Acts chapter 16, verses 10, which says, and when Paul had seen the vision, immediately... We sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. What we see in these 
we passages is that the author of Luke and Acts was a companion of Paul who spent time with him on his second and third missionary journeys. From Paul's letters, we see that Luke was one of Paul's companions. For example, in Colossians 4.14, he wrote, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. In Philemon, Paul referred to Luke as a fellow worker. Toward the end of Paul's life, in 2 Timothy 4.11, he wrote, Luke alone is with me. Now, Luke was not the only companion of Paul on his journeys, but it's interesting how the author of Acts identifies some of Paul's companions by name, but never Luke. And so that is one indication when we hear these we passages that Luke was the person or was the author. But we also are helped by the testimony of the early church. In church history, we see that the attestation of Luke as the author of this gospel is early and unanimous. So from the second century, we see significant church leaders identify Luke as the author of this gospel. Church leaders such as Irenaeus, Tertullian, and Eusebius. We also see that there were no competing traditions. There were no competing traditions saying, well, so-and-so says it's Luke, but I think it's this person. It's unanimous. Early and unanimous, this gospel is attributed to Luke. For these reasons, we have confidence that Luke, the physician and companion of Paul, was the author. So Luke is our author who wrote this gospel account to make known the gospel of the surprising kingdom of God. Our text today is Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, where Luke provides an introduction for his gospel account. In these verses, we see significance, process, and aim. Significance, process, and aim. Here's what I mean. We see the significance of Luke's subject matter. We see his process in researching and writing his gospel. And we see his aim in writing or his purpose, his goal. So I'm going to read Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, and I encourage you to follow along. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. The first thing for us to see is the significance of Luke's subject. In verse 1, he referred to others who had written narratives of the things that have been accomplished among us. Other English versions translate that phrase, the things that have been fulfilled among us. And in verse 3, he refers to writing down his own account of this subject matter. Luke immediately calls his reader's attention to the significance or importance 
of what he was writing about. Namely, the events he recorded in his gospel happened according to God's promises and word. In the Old Testament scriptures, God made promises. He made wonderful and extraordinary promises that were not fulfilled during the Old Testament period of time. He made promises that would be fulfilled in the future. And the Lord also spoke through his prophets. He spoke through his prophets and foretold things that would come in the future, things that he would do, ways in which he would act, things that he would accomplish for his people. In the Gospel of Luke, we see how many of these promises and prophecies were fulfilled. We see how the Lord accomplished what he said he would do. Last week, Bill demonstrated this beautifully through his sermon on the servant songs found in Isaiah chapters 40 through 55. What Bill showed us from these passages is that the servant of the Lord will serve by being a savior. The savior will save by being a sufferer. The sufferer will suffer by offering himself as a sacrifice. And in that self-sacrifice, the servant will show himself to be the one true servant. Bill also showed us in Luke's gospel how Jesus perfectly fulfilled the servant of the Lord passages from Isaiah. The theme that the Lord accomplished or fulfilled things he promised or foretold long ago comes up time and time again in Luke's gospel. We're going to see this next week when Zechariah went to the temple to offer incense, as was the tradition, according to the priesthood, and the angel of the Lord appeared to him and told him that he and his wife were going to have a son. And the Lord told him about his son and what his son was going to do. And in telling these things to Zechariah, he referenced verses from the book of Malachi. Malachi being the last of the Old Testament prophets. And the angel referenced these passages from Malachi, demonstrating that this son who was going to be born to Zechariah and Elizabeth was going to fulfill the, Lord, the things the Lord promised and foretold in Malachi. And we're going to continue to see this throughout Luke's gospel. And we're going to see that all the way to the end of the gospel. After his death and resurrection, Jesus appeared to many people over the course of 40 days. And we read about one of these instances in Luke chapter 24, verses 44, where we read, Jesus said to them, his disciples, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Everything written about me in the Old Testament scriptures must be be fulfilled. Do you see how this shapes how we understand and interpret the scriptures? Jesus said, the Old Testament scriptures are all about me. They find their fulfillment in me. Which means for us, we look to scriptures knowing that in the scriptures, we are going to learn about Jesus. 
Regardless of where we are in the scriptures, we can learn about Jesus. And that means every time we preach God's word from scripture, it should be a distinctly Christian message. Whether it's from the Old Testament, the gospel accounts, or the epistles in the New Testament, every time we open and proclaim God's word, it should be a distinctly Christian message that points to Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. The events Luke recorded had unfolded according to God's plan. Every example we will see throughout this series of God fulfilling a promise or prophecy is significant in its own way. But when we take all the examples together, we must not miss the significance that Luke's gospel testifies that God keeps his word and fulfills his promises. Friends, the one true living God is faithful. He is trustworthy. He is true to his word. He delivers on his promises. As citizens of his kingdom, we want our lives to attest to his trustworthiness by trusting in him. We see many commands throughout the scripture that we are to trust in the Lord. We are to believe in him. We are to put our faith in him. And when we do so, we attest to the fact that he is faithful, that he is trustworthy, that he keeps his promises. So may we as citizens of his kingdom demonstrate that he is trustworthy by trusting wholly in him. May we base our lives off of his word. May his word be authoritative and instructive for us. So here in the introduction, we see the significance of Luke's subject matter. We also see his process. Luke gives us a glimpse of his process in researching the events of Jesus' life and writing his gospel account. He described himself as having followed all things closely. The NASB translates that phrase as having investigated everything carefully from the beginning. Luke followed and investigated the events of Jesus' life from the beginning. He was thorough. He said he followed all things or investigated everything. He left no stone unturned. Think of a good detective investigating a crime. A good detective investigating a crime wants to leave no stone unturned. A good detective would not say, well, there are five witnesses who witnessed this crime. I've interviewed three of them. That's probably good. We'll call it a day. Three out of five. No. A good detective wants to investigate thoroughly, interview 
every witness. Examine every piece of evidence. And Luke approached this like a good detective, seeking to examine all the evidence and inquire with the eyewitnesses. And he made use of multiple credible sources of information. He studied the written records. Most scholars agree that the gospel Mark was a significant source of information for Luke and Matthew. And this makes sense. Mark was a disciple of Peter and likely an eyewitness of numerous things within the ministry of Jesus. Mark was a credible source of information regarding the life and ministry of Christ. And therefore, Luke would use Mark as a credible source of information. But he did not rely exclusively on Mark. Luke's thoroughness is seen in the fact that 30% of the content in his gospel is not found in the other gospels. And that's because he was thorough. That's because he researched. And that's because he wrote a longer gospel account. He studied other written records as well as oral tradition and eyewitness testimony. Luke traveled with Paul to places um, such as Jerusalem and Caesarea. And surely he interviewed people along the way. It is likely that he interviewed many, if not all, of the apostles. He may have interviewed Mary, the mother of Jesus. He may have interviewed the disciples of John the Baptist. These are people whom he would want to speak with. And so it would not be surprising if he pursued them, if he spoke with them, if he asked them questions, helped him fill out his account of the life and ministry and the death and resurrection of Christ. Again, he was familiar with the oral traditions, the written traditions, and the eyewitness testimony. And his research and investigation led him to write an orderly account. He was not writing a myth. He was not writing legend or religious propaganda. Instead, he was providing narrative history. He provided specific names, locations, events, and times. And by the way, Numerous details from the four gospel accounts are confirmed in non-Christian sources. Historian John Dixon does a good job of showing how numerous significant details that we find in the gospels are confirmed in Greco-Roman and Jewish sources of information. So here's a list of some of the things that you can learn about Jesus without ever opening the Bible the name Jesus, his name was Jesus, the place and time frame of his public ministry, Galilee and Judea during Pontius Pilate's governorship, roughly sometime between 80, 26, and 36, the name of his mother, Mary, the ambiguous nature of his birth, the name of one of his brothers, James, his fame as a teacher, his fame as a miracle worker, or if you're asking his opponents, as a sorcerer, the uh, attribution, attribution to him of the title Messiah Christ, his kingly status in the eyes of some, the time and manner of his execution, crucifixion around the Passover festival, the involvement of both the Roman and Jewish leadership in his death, the coincidence of an eclipse at the time of his crucifixion, 
the report of Jesus' appearance to his followers after his death, the flourishing of a movement that worshiped Jesus after his death, and the fact that many of his followers worshiped him as God from a very early time period. These are all historical details that are confirmed from non-Christian sources. And while Luke's gospel is a narrative history, it differs from a biography. He did not provide a comprehensive book on the life of Jesus. That was not his goal. His goal was not to tell us all the details of Jesus' life. There's some things that we would probably like to know about his life, about his ministry. There are some details that are left out. Luke was selective in what he included in his gospel, as were the other gospel writers. They were selective in what they included because they included what, their, what they believed their readers needed to know and understand, the most important things. In John's gospel, he speaks to this explicitly. In John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, he said, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that, you may, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And here's how John concludes his gospel. In chapter 21, verse 25, Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. In other words, the authors of the Gospels had to make tough choices. They had to make tough choices about what they would include in their Gospel accounts. They had to be selective. And by the Holy Spirit working through them, they included what we need. Luke's Gospel follows a general chronology of the life of Jesus, but Luke did not place everything in chronological order. He provided an orderly account, which meant that some of the things he arranged topically, and that was okay. That fit his purpose. So it follows a general chronology, but not every detail is laid out chronologically. In sum, he provided a well-researched and orderly account of the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And one of the things Luke's introduction reminds us of and impresses on us is the importance of the historical claims of Christianity and thus the importance of eyewitness testimony. At the heart of Christianity is the gospel. And as I said, the gospel is this announcement of good news that God saves sinners in Jesus Christ through his life, death, and resurrection. And this announcement of good news is only good news if the events it is based on are true. If they didn't happen, we don't have good news to proclaim. Christianity makes a bold claim. Christianity, unlike most religions, makes a bold claim in saying, our faith is based on these events that took place in history. If these events did not take place, we've got nothing. Christianity is worthless. It's meaningless. Paul made this point explicitly when he wrote about the resurrection in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He argued this point because there were some in Corinth who were denying the resurrection of the dead. And Paul's saying, 
That's crazy. He was saying, that's crazy. No, the resurrection is true. And he's like, listen, if you're denying the resurrection, then you're saying that Jesus was not raised. And in chapter 15, verse 14, he said, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. And he went on to say that if Christ has not been raised, then, then we should be pitied, especially Paul, who suffered for Christ, who suffered brutally and repeatedly because of his faith in Christ and because of his faithful preaching of this gospel message. And he's saying, if Christ has not been raised, Christianity is worthless. It's of no value. Don't come to Christianity for inspirational motivation. Don't do that. If it's not true, don't come for inspirational motivation because you're coming to a lie to find inspiration. That's crazy. If Christ has not been raised, Christianity is simply not true and it's of no value and what we're doing right here is a waste of time. But it is true. And it's been confirmed through reliable eyewitness testimony. We see throughout the New Testament the importance of the historical facts of the gospel and the importance of eyewitness testimony. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus said to his disciples, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria into the end of the earth. In Acts chapter five, the apostles were arrested and imprisoned by the high priest and religious leadership in Jerusalem because they were preaching the gospel. And in Acts chapter five, verses 27 through 32, we read, and when they had brought them, they set them before the council and the high priest questioned them saying, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. How did Peter respond to these threats? How did he respond to encouragement? He pointed to the historical facts. Now, this is what happened. Christ died. He was raised. He's been exalted. We must obey God and preach the truth of the gospel. His boldness came from the Holy Spirit and the truth of the gospel. The fact that he was an eyewitness of these realities. He was willing to suffer and ultimately die rather than deny the truth of these things. It's one thing to die for truth 
or tradition that has been handed down to you, that's been passed down, that you've received. That is a good, commendable thing for Christians who have received the gospel, who are willing to die for the gospel. But just consider for a moment the apostles who were willing to suffer and die, not because of truth that had been handed down, that had been passed down to them, but because of what they claimed to see with their own eyes. Would they be willing to suffer and die if they were lying, if they were making this up? It's one thing to say, yeah, I saw this thing that happened. I believe it to be true. It's another thing altogether to be willing to die rather than forsake that truth. They were reliable, credible eyewitnesses whose boldness in preaching the gospel was based on their conviction from their own eyes that these things happened. Christ died, he was raised, and he was exalted to the right hand of the Father. And this theme of testifying to the truth based on eyewitness testimony continues throughout the New Testament. Years later, Peter continued to insist that he witnessed these things. He never backed off. He never wavered. He never compromised. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, he wrote, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Guys, we're not making this stuff up. This is not a myth. This is not a clever idea. We witness these things, and they are true. Jesus is who he says he is. And John wrote in 1 John 1, 1 to 4, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. These things are true. We have seen, we have heard, we have touched. And therefore, we proclaim this truth to you so that you too will believe, have eternal life, and have fellowship with us that our joy may be complete. Look at what is at stake. And the eyewitness testimony of these historical realities we see the importance of eyewitness testimony in numerous places in the New Testament. And many eyewitnesses testified to the same things and were willing to suffer and die for the truth they proclaimed based on what they witnessed firsthand. Because of the significance of his subject, because of what is at stake, and because of the claims made by Jesus and his apostles, Luke thoroughly researched the facts of the matter and provided an orderly and reliable account of the things that have been accomplished or fulfilled among them. Finally, we see his aim. Why did Luke invest so much time researching and investigating the life of Jesus? Why did he go through the painstaking process of writing a careful and orderly account of these things? What effect did he hope his writing would have on Theophilus and everyone else who would read his gospel? In his words, that you may have certainty 
concerning the things you have been taught. Theophilus had been taught the good news about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But the gospel of Jesus Christ is not merely an interesting subject or entertaining story. Rather, it is a matter of eternal significance and utmost importance, and this good news hinges on certain historical facts. Therefore, Luke thoroughly researched and verified the events to ensure that Theophilus and everyone who reads his gospel would have certainty that the gospel message is true. Being a Christian in the first century was tough. Many of the Christians in the first century faced persecution, physical beatings, imprisonment, and even death. And those who did not face severe persecution of that nature may have faced ridicule or marginalization, pressure to abandon what they claimed to be true. It was not popular to be a Christian in the first century. It was not easy to be a Christian in the first century. And certainly there were those who questioned at times, is it worth it? Is this really true? It was costly. In light of the cost, Luke wrote, Dear Theophilus, the good news about Jesus Christ is true. You can stake your life on it. It's worth giving up everything. You have not believed in vain. Luke thoroughly researched and wrote an orderly account of the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, demonstrating God is faithful to his promises and word so that Theophilus and all who read his account will have certainty regarding the truth of the gospel. Friends, Christianity cannot be reduced to good advice, a moral code, or inspirational religious instruction. We proclaim the gospel, the gospel of God, the good news that God saves sinners in Jesus Christ, which is our only hope. God is our creator. He is the creator of everyone and everything, and he made us in his image to know him, to obey him, to glorify him, to enjoy him. Yet we have all rebelled against him as our king. We've all disobeyed his good commands. We've all strayed and gone our own way. We've all sinned against him and fallen short of his glory. Yet God in his mercy and his kindness has provided a way for us to escape the punishment we deserve because of our rebellion. The punishment we deserve is eternity in hell. And apart from God's grace, gracious intervention, that is where we will go. But God in his mercy and his kindness has provided a way for us to escape the judgment we deserve and instead to be forgiven of our sins, to be forgiven of our rebellion, to be restored to God, 
to know him as our father, to receive the gift of eternal life, to be welcomed into his kingdom for all eternity. And he did so by sending Jesus Christ, the son of God, into the world as the savior of the world. Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. Jesus lived a life without sin. Jesus went to the cross to take the punishment we deserve in our place. Jesus died and was buried. On the third day, he rose from the grave and he appeared to hundreds of people, proving beyond any shadow of a doubt that he is alive. And after appearing and proving that he is alive, he ascended into heaven where he's now seated at the right hand of the Father. And he said, he will come again to judge the living and the dead. And what we've seen in scripture is the Lord is faithful to do what he says he will do. Christ will come again to judge the living and the dead. And our only hope on that day of judgment is in Jesus Christ. All who repent and believe in Christ will be saved. That is what's at stake. That is our only hope. Friend, if you are not a Christian, that is your only hope. And I encourage you, believe in Christ and be saved. May today be the day of salvation for you. We proclaim the gospel we proclaim the gospel with confidence as the Lord has proven that he fulfills his promises and prophecies. The gospel is true, and you can be sure of this. For those of us who are Christians, I believe the Lord wants to use Luke's introduction to grow our confidence in the gospel. We who have been saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ are called to live our lives in a manner worthy of the gospel as citizens of the kingdom of God as we await the return of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If we are going to live as citizens of the kingdom, we need to be confident in the gospel. We need to believe that it is true. That doesn't mean we never have doubts. It doesn't mean we never struggle in, in moments of weakness. But ultimately, the Lord wants to use his word to strengthen our faith, to grow our confidence in him and the truth of the gospel message we believe and proclaim. We have to believe we can stake our lives on it. Whatever we stand to lose or suffer for Christ in this life is worth it. Does your life reflect confidence that the gospel is true? That it's worth losing everything for? It's worth suffering for? It's worth dying for? May God instill that confidence in our hearts and minds. Brothers and sisters, may we have certainty regarding the things we have been taught about Jesus Christ and his kingdom. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you for your word. Your word is good. Your word is good for, uh, good for us.
And we pray through the power of your spirit, working through your word, that we too will have certainty regarding the things that we have been taught. We pray that we will have confidence that the gospel is true. We pray that we will be those who hold fast to Jesus and the truth of the gospel, whatever the cost. We pray that you will use our time in Luke's gospel to grow our love for our King, Jesus Christ, to grow our understanding of the kingdom. We pray that you will use this time to help us live here and now as citizens of the kingdom as we eagerly await the return of our King, as we eagerly await the consummation of the kingdom. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.